Hi, everyone. This is John Tapper coming to you from beautiful Burlington, Vermont. Welcome to our final episode of season three of ALN Math Talk. Math Talk is where we answer your questions about online lessons, math learning, and the meaning of mathematics. Please help us spread the all learners mission of cultivating a community of educators that promote math equity and inclusion for all students. Check out our website at alllearnersnetwork.com for free, that's free, resources and amazing math PD opportunities for educators under the workshops tab. We're recording this in May of 2023. And today we are joined by the amazing Pam Harris coming to us from the state of Texas. Um, welcome, Pam. Thank you, John. Super glad. Uh, I'm glad to, to be on and super nice of you to have me. So, um, we always start by asking people about their math journey. Can you tell us how you got to be the mathematician and math teacher you are today? Yeah, so I was driving home one day from my kid's school, and I almost was on autopilot because I was thinking hard about a conversation I just had with my kid's teachers. Um, they were worried that students didn't know their multiplication facts. And as a high school math teacher, I was very concerned because I knew because kids need to know their multiplication facts. This is like super important. And I was troubled by that. And I drove into my driveway. I walked into my house. I smelled something. I noticed my oldest son was sitting in the kitchen eating a double fudge chocolate Pop-Tart. I was like, dude, eat a banana. <laughs> but but then I, I said, hey, hey, you're my kid. Do you know your facts? And I didn't ask him that out loud. What I said was, do you know, do you, I just chose one, one number. Do you know your fives? I will never forget. He looked up at me calmly, no, no, no stress, whatever. And he's like, no. I said, what? Like, like, what do you mean you don't know your fives? A, a mom panic, a high school math teacher and my own kid doesn't know his multiplication facts. Maybe None of the students, this is, he's around grade four, grade five at this point. So he could see that I was getting kind of riled up and upset and everything. And he said, mom, mom, it's okay. You don't have to know your fives if you know your tens. I was like, what? Say, say more about, give me an example. And he said, uh, okay, so say you don't know nine times five. Do you know nine times 10? I was like, well, yeah, that's 90. He said, well, five is half of 10. So it's half of 90. And I was like, 45. Five good heavens. Does that work all the time? Because nine times five is 45. <laughs> Wait, were you a math major in college? Yes. <laughs> and you, that's fascinating. Well, so yeah. So let me, let, yeah. If I could like get you a window into my brain, I was the quintessential successful student because I bought into the myth that math is a disconnected set of facts to memorize and rules and procedures to mimic. And I did it well. I memorized and spit back out. I mimicked the professor well. I'll never forget standing in an abstract algebra professor's classroom at BYU. Or actually, he was in his office at BYU. Um, I'm a I'm I'm one or two classes away from graduating at, with a math major, and I looked at him and I said, "I don't understand abstract algebra. If you will give me the proof ahead of time, I will memorize the proof and I will spit that thing back out on your test. But you keep asking me to prove new stuff." How am I supposed to do that? He goes, well, you have to understand the relationships and then you have to understand proof and you got to put those together. So fascinating to me is I actually was pretty good at proof, but I did not own the relationships. I was a mimicker, um, just like uh, Peter Lilly at all. We'll talk about kids mimicking. I was the quintessential 
mimicker. So in this moment, when I'm asking my kid about multiplication facts and he's found a strategy using relationships to not just find five times, but in this case, nine, because at that moment when he's like, well, yeah, so you could do five times nine that way. My numeracy was so bad. I said, whoa, wait, 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 give me another example. He looked at me and he said, okay, five times 23. John, in that moment, I was super aware. I was thinking about this small set of multiplication facts for single digits. And he had found a way to find five times anything. He was thinking in a way that I didn't know existed about math. And I got super intrigued. And then I looked at him and realized his intrigue, his interest, his sort of he was creative and playful about those relationships. Mm -hmm. And I thought of my high school math students. I was doing all the things I knew to get them interested. I was having rhymes. I told good stories. We had, you know, like one time I had my kids create raps. I mean, it was all about if math is about a bunch of stuff to memorize, how can we memorize it better? But as I looked at my kid, I was like, I, I want to create you in my students. And I'll be a little vulnerable here. I wanted to create him in me. Like sure. I recognized he was thinking differently than I was. And all of a sudden, I, I because maybe because he was mine, I was like, I think I could do that. So I dove into the research. I read journal articles and studies and I dove into my kids' classrooms, literally went into the elementary classrooms in our district. And I said, can I try stuff? And I experimented and I experimented for years on my kids and their classmates and with those teachers. And I started doing professional learning with those younger teacher, or the younger teachers of younger students, um, my kids' teachers and learned a ton. We, uh, I tried all the things. Some worked, many didn't work. Um, I think it was my background in higher math that helped me sift through a lot of the less helpful research and focus on the stuff that I thought would really work well. And then we, we you know, we, we kept working at it. And y'all, Math is actually figure outable. I believe we can all think and do math like my kid did, like mathematicians do more and more. And it helps us not just in, in higher math, though it does, but also in life. It is the kind of work that helps us be able to do stuff. I believe we can all do math like that. And we can help our students to do the same, that math is actually figure outable. Did I, did I? Did I hear a little trademark at the end of math? The math is figure outable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and, and I, I trademarked that quite a while ago because I thought that it, it encapsulated so much what described what my son was doing versus and, and the the antidote or antidote, the ant antithesis of that is that math is rote memorizable. That's what I think so many of the teachers I work with now um were like me, that math was wrote memorizable. And if it is, that impacts the way you work with students, the way you interact with the math, the way you interact with teaching. It influences so much. And so my my mission is to help change the world that we can all, all figure out math. Yeah, mine too. Ours too. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that was quite a shift for you. Indeed. Indeed it was. Um, and just out of interest, we, we often say uh, we, one of the questions we cling to here at All Learners Network is, who is the math for? And, you know, at a certain point in a kid's math career, um, 
well, for certain kids, math is a thing that teachers do to them, right? It, it's, they like have to endure it. They don't know what they're doing. They're confused, but they have to endure it. Um, why do you think so many teachers still cling so vociferously to math as a bunch of formulas that kids have to memorize? Yeah, I think uh, in a huge way, it, uh, I think there are two perspectives that impact. Um, one is kind of the one I've just been talking about. Uh, you know, I was a high school math teacher and I was doing my darndest to help those kids wrote memorize um, because that's all I knew math was. I knew that if kids were going to be good at multiplication, they needed to have multiplication facts at the ready. And so we're, well, but that's only if my goal is that they can mimic that multiplication algorithm over and over and over and over. But if my goal is that I want students to reason multiplicatively, then I do want the facts at their fingertips, but I want more than that. I don't want just rote memory of facts. I want actually relationships among numbers multiplicatively. So an example of that is I don't just want single digit fives. I want five is half of 10. So I can find five times anything. That relationship, sure, I want five times nine relatively. Um, I don't want it to weigh on. I don't want it to bog me down in the work I'm doing. But I would much rather have a kid go uh, 10 times 90, 40, 45 using relationships. That's not a rote memory thing. That's using, that's actually thinking about 90 and having it to get 45. I'd rather have them build their brains to do that than to do something like uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 and count by fives nine times that's additive thinking that's less sophisticated or yeah. much worse somebody um Ellie in in uh England just sent me she's like have you seen this a cartoon of uh will help you learn your facts in 10 minutes two these two facts you'll learn in 10 minutes and then they literally told the story about Mrs. Week cuz week should remind you of the number 7 because there's 7 days in a week and so they drew this like stick figure person inside the number 7 sat on a chair and a chair, you know, that should remind you of a number four, right? Because the number four looks like a chair, not even. So they had this like number seven person sitting on this number four chair. And they said, Mrs. Week sat on a chair and she went fishing and she caught two boots and eight fish. And then this cute cartoon has two boots coming out of boots. What? And eight fish coming out of this like cartoon lake. And they, and they land on the dock and they're, and I'm looking at it from a real math perspective. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. And then it occurs to me, Oh, they mean seven times four. Mrs. Week sat on a chair, seven times four. Two boots and eight fish is 28. In whose universe is two and eight 28? <laughs> so then, then they had the audacity to say, now don't remember the story wrong. She didn't catch eight fish in two boots. I mean, there's, there's no community like... property. Like what? Ah! Well, there's no math in that. It's there's just no an associative... Uh, yeah, activity. I mean, it's kind of like all of those mnemonic devices that people use, you know, dead monkey smell bad and something yeah. about McDonald's selling cheese, but you know, to remember the division yep. algorithm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. But, and how people want to make the argument that that's not meaningful or well, that it is but, meaningful in some way. So so I don't think they make the argument it's meaningful. I think the argument in their brains is math is this disconnected set of facts to memorize. And so I'm going to help it 
have content, not context, but I'm going to give kids the mnemonic that will help them do that. I almost feel like sometimes those teachers um, think I was left alone to try to memorize that. I'm going to help my kids memorize that. <laughs> well, if that's what math is, then boy, how do you get after it? But but I think we have to give them the experience that that's not what math is. But if I may, there's another segment of teachers that I think have a slightly different um, take, and it but it also impacts the way they teach. So I think there is a maybe smaller segment. No, I'm not maybe. It is smaller segment of people who, as the teacher was saying, do these steps and mimic me. They were actually like my kid saying, well, I mean, you could do that. But for those numbers, I would just think about five is half and 10. Or another example would be if a teacher lined up 99 and 38 to add and they said, OK, now start over in the small numbers. I, my kid would come home and say, why do they do that? Can't you just think about 99, 100? And now I'm supposed to add 38, but I've got one less to add. So what is 137? It's 137. So John, as I'm saying that, listeners can't hear, but he's nodding. Well, that was a completely new idea to me as a high school math teacher. I had never thought about 99 and 38 as anything other than lining the numbers up and doing the rules. But my point is, if you're the other guy, if you're like my kid, and you created those relationships on your own, then you now have the danger of, of thinking to yourself, that is the way that you created it. In other words, you give credit to the teacher showing you the rules as how you then figured out these this other stuff. And so you mm. say to yourself, either you do it on your own like I did and you have the math gene, or I guess you need the rules. So I better give you the rules because you can't do it without the rules. Either way, we end up with teachers, well-meaning teachers, doing what they think will work best for students. And in reality, it doesn't work best for anyone. Even, I'm pointing at me, even those of us who looked like we were doing it well. And, and it, it, when all, all I was doing was fake math. Well, and I think there's a, beside the fact that it doesn't work. I mean, the problem is that the teacher telling the students how to think use this technique, um, if it never worked, we would have abandoned it, right? But it works for a small, I mean, Peter uh, Lillian Dahl's works as like a quarter of the kids, I, I would say maybe up to half the kids. But if you think about the actual, um, the meaning of the fact that a teacher says to the kids, think like me, right? Do it this way. Think like me. The 70 plus percent of teachers in the U.S. are white middle-class teachers. So is it any surprise that the vast majority of students who are proficient in math are white middle-class kids? If the teaching model is think like me, then kids who look like me and have similar experiences to me are going to find it slightly easier to think like me. Unfortunately, and historically, it leaves out this whole other group of people, which is why the necessity for students to make personal meaning of the math, which is what you and I talk about all the time, is so important and is related to this whole idea of equity in mathematics. Because when I pose a problem and my pedagogy is about asking questions to help the student enter the problem and make the conceptual leap. It doesn't depend on what who I am or what I know. It doesn't depend on who the student is or what they know. It simply depends on 
watching carefully what the student is doing and responding to that so they could they can make the leap. So this notion of teaching, here's how you do it. Now you do it a hundred times. Now you know how to do it is not just ineffective pedagogy, it actually has ramifications well beyond that, because you're really saying, think like me. I might go a little further to say that when you say, do it like this, and you do it 100 times, and now you're doing it correctly, that, that it's you're actually not saying, think like me, you're saying, mimic me. I, I don't know if that's too too much of a parse, parsing in words. Um, and, and, and mimicking is not what we're after. We're, we're after growth of thought. We're after um, uh, more sophisticated thought. We want students to, to not just do what they can now. We want to help them do what they can better, right? It, it, we don't want to leave them where they are. Sometimes people talk about low floor, high ceiling tasks. And I worry that they hear, give them a task that they can do. And I want to say, give them a task they can uh, almost do. Enter, the task they, they can, can work enter. to do, yeah, that yeah, they can yeah, yeah. grow into doing, like right on the edge of their zone of proximal development. I think um, teachers might miss here, give them a task that they can just like sail through, and then they don't grow. The student doesn't grow. They don't, uh, I, I, maybe one other thing that you said, I just want to um, uh, dive into just a little bit more. When you said it doesn't matter what the teacher knows. I think, if, if I may, I think it does a little bit matter what the teacher knows. Well, the content knowledge certainly does matter. Okay, and and pedagogical knowledge to to ask the question, right? So, um, I think it's a little less of um, that we don't. Well, in fact, I'll just say I think one of the things that I differ in when I work with a lot of really good people who are uh, with all good intentions working with um, teachers. So I teach teachers, right, and they're teaching teachers. I think we've got a we're doing a lot of work on the on the how, um, and that's not bad. Uh, I want I want to help teachers um, with the how they teach, but I also talk about the what. So I will have in mind as I work with students. Say I'm I'm working with younger students and I'm trying to build multiplicative reasoning. I will have some major relationships in mind. I I will be thinking about those as I'm, it's kind of like what you said, you know, as we're interviewing or or we're nudging and we're asking questions, we're really trying to help the student have access. Um, I'm also going into that knowing, and there are these major relationships I want to nudge them towards. And just because it came up earlier, one of them is five is half of 10, which grows into 50 is half of a hundred. And also in middle school gets super important that 0.5 is half of one. And, and lots of really cool things that we can do with multiplication and division and fractions and decimals and percents based on just that one relationship alone. So when I work with teachers, um, I will definitely talk about the how, but I will also help build their what, because if they yeah, aren't reasoning with those major relationships, there's no way they can then nudge that and help um, support that in their students. Yeah. And I, I, of course, I think that's really important. I, I think for me, because we're going to get to this topic at some point, the people who criticize our approach, which can be talked of as a million different things, inquiry, constructivism, meaning making, that they they're what they try to tell people is, well, this approach is here's a problem, kids, go invent math. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, in a in point of fact, it requires a much greater understanding of the what and the how. Mm-hmm. Because 
I think it's it's a false belief that when we tell kids things, they learn them. Right. In the end, the learner is always the one who does the learning. And so to say, well, I told them so they should know is a little silly because do you know they know? Like they're the ones who make the meaning out of this. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's I the image I sometimes use is <clears throat> can we really unzip a kid's head and pour stuff in? <laughs> and do they own it like they would? Um uh when they grapple with the relationships and in that grappling, their brain actually gets stronger that we, that they have to grapple. So I I do want to give the devil their their due a little bit in that when um, I would agree, this is so super subtle. So everybody hear what I mean here. I would agree that what we don't want to do is give kids problems that is outside the zone of proximal development and say to them, guess, guess, right. Nope. Didn't guess right guess again, I believe in you as sort of like a, almost a a coach that didn't give the students um, any kind of sense of where they're going. And and that it's literally a guess what's in my head kind of thing. So we we actually saw this play out. Um, We were working with a group of teachers um, and we were working with a subset of the teachers a lot. So we were helping build their both content and their pedagogy. And then we would go into classrooms and we would do certain tasks with students. And then one of the teachers said, Hey, we were telling the other teachers about the tasks. And I was like, you know, I'd like to kind of see how that worked. You know, we've worked with you. We've, we, we literally created in those teachers. We, we helped them think more sophisticatedly about the math and the, and the teaching. I wonder how that transfers when you just tell your fellow teacher. Right. And so we went and we observed the fellow teachers classrooms. And what we found was what they'd heard is what I think that you're the people you were just talking about are saying don't do. They would launch a problem with not enough, um, not not a good enough launch. So there wasn't enough ideas percolating in the classroom to to help the problem go anywhere. And then as they worked with students who were stuck, they would say things like, "Nope, try again. Oh, good effort. You can do it." Yeah. And it was all about like motivational language and it there was no support there was no scaffolding there was no i know the math and so i'm going to ask the next good question to attach to what you know to help bridge to where we're going that yeah i think i think this is a this is a really key point because it has to do with supervision in a sense right so we, we have a whole simulation that we do around this but if a principal walks into a classroom and she sees the teacher using manipulatives, speaking positively, encouraging the students. Mm-hmm. They're thrilled. This is a good math teacher. And of course, what we know is this is a person with the potential to be a good math teacher. But if the students aren't doing the building, if they're listening to the teacher and copying what she does, this is not an effective lesson. Anytime a litmus or, test for or, me is, or, or the flip side, flip side, if they hand out the manipulatives and say, now guess, and, sure. and the teacher doesn't have a clear objective. Like, so we're not saying either of those crazy extremes. There's a, a, there's a sweet spot in the middle. You mentioned that earlier in our earlier conversation. There's this sweet spot we're aiming for. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. No, it's good. Where, where the teacher has the content knowledge to know how to get kids something just that they can, they can dive in, they can grapple with, they can actually literally create new connections in their brains 
and go, whoa, five is actually half of 10. And it is helpful in this problem in this way. And, and they now can think more sophisticatedly than they did when they began, not wandering off on their own, not trying to guess and grapple, but also not mimicking, not just being a robot or a parrot. Um, I will just parrot what you said and did that. That's not, that's not creating uh, more sophisticated thinkers. It's like this saying, does get you A's though. <laughs> well, it does in the current system and that's, we, we've yeah. got, we've got to change that. Absolutely. Yeah. In the, in the current, um, uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I want? Um, universe of, ch- well, of, or maybe universe right now of chat GPT. Yeah. It's like saying now that we have chat GPT, we don't need to teach kids anything because when they need something, they'll just ask chat GPT. I hope no one believes that like <laughs> we need sophisticated thinkers that can interpret what that machine is giving back and that can then like um, be able to to warn us all about the potential dangers of chat GPT and, and these AI large language models. Anyway, we, we have to have sophisticated thinkers. It is no longer enough to have people that are knowledge retrievers. That is, that is, we now have Google and chat GPT that have replaced knowledge retrievers. Does that mean we don't want knowledge in kids' heads? Of course not. Of course we want them to own things. But what's more important is the way they are thinking. So that requires some knowledge, but it also requires that they are that they are gaining that knowledge as their brains are uh, gaining in sophistication. So I want to, I mean, I've probably done this in three other podcasts, but I want to just put out there this ALN model of how you learn math, right? So um, there's a problem or a task that gets you stuck. So Marilyn... Burns famously says, if you're not doing a problem and you're not stuck, what are you doing? Why is it worthwhile, right? So you need to choose a problem that gets somebody stuck, and we would say in the right place, in the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hard. It's not too easy. Okay, so then once you've got a task, once you've done the what that you were talking about, chosen the task, then the stuck part is all about productive struggle. And people are talking more about what that looks like. And I would say, to some degree, elementary school teachers are getting better at knowing that struggling is part of the process of learning mathematics, you know, because especially elementary people, we're warm and friendly and we don't like to see kids, you know, but the struggle's there. And then there is a moment of mathematical insight. And the insight happens when you're struggling and your brain is in a very, very particular state. It's in this alpha state, it's a measurable state, but it's relaxed and curious. So that when you're anxious and your brain state has wound up into the high beta state, you don't have access to that sudden insight. But there is an insight. And once you once you start to look for this in kids, you see it all the time there faces change, their body language is different. Oh, you know, you get that. Oh, you know, they're intrigued. They're naturally intrigued. They're intrigued. And there's this leap that they've made. And what's hard is that um, it's not a linear process, you know, like sometimes there's a lot of struggle and, and boom, sometimes there's a little struggle and then boom, sometimes there's a lot of struggle. And as teachers, we're looking for the question that will help make that turn. 
And then once you have the insight, if you talk about it, reflect on it, and practice it, then essentially you're taking this new understanding and you're connecting it to prior knowledge. So you're able to retrieve it in long-term memory. What happens a lot, especially with kids that are struggling, is they don't have the insight. So they make the leap. They don't, sorry, they're asked to practice something when they haven't made the leap. And so they make shit up. Like they invent, that's where misconceptions are born. I'm trying to explain something the teachers told me to explain, but I don't really get it. So this process is making sure that the leap's been made and then explicitly connecting the practice and the reflection to that new insight. If you don't do the reflection and practice, kids talking about it and writing about it, then the insight is like this happy memory. Oh, I solved the puzzle. I can't go back and solve a puzzle like it again because it's not connected to other things I know, but I have this happy feeling. Oh, you know, I, I made this leap. So the teacher is putting the student in the position to make the leap. They do not have control over the student doing it. The student has the insight, the teacher recognizes, and then how can we talk about this? How can we broaden it? And then how can we practice it? So would you agree in the talking that that insight could actually be, I think you're saying this, that, that, that insight actually gets deeper, gets more solid, gets more oh, yeah, 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 yeah. clarified. Yeah. So, so talking so the, about it's a clarifying experience. You know, there's this idea. I thought a lot about this idea of what is a concept. And there's a sort of classic definition for it that says, a concept is everything that separates an idea from everything else, and it's the thing itself. And so a visual model of this is an idea, like what happens when we reason multiplicatively, is like a gem inside of a matrix. And the more we talk about it, the more we delineate it from other things. We're like cutting new facets in that gem. So the the dialogue is always about going deeper. In fact, you know, when I when I was teaching undergrads, I had Tapper's two golden rules. The learner does the work and what the kids have to say to each other is more important than what you have to say to them. And I thought, if you can do those two things, you're on your way to being a relatively effective math teacher. And so I think this conversation about a model for how people actually learned math, not the behavioral notion that we like you were just suggesting we put little things in their heads it kind of gives you a framework to think about okay is this task i'm choosing going to get them stuck or is it just a practice task what's my new learning aimed at you know realistic math education in uh the netherlands which mm -hmm. is a, Good ser a series of problems that are aligned to do exactly this uh, Marty Simon and Ron Sewer's work about hypothetical learning trajectories and, uh, uh, Doug, and Doug Clements and Julie Sarama followed up. But it's the same idea, right? We have to go from one insight to the next insight to the next insight. And it's not about teaching those. It's about setting up the conditions for that insight to happen and then paying attention so that we can follow up on it with, like you were saying, with the important dialogue that broadens those ideas out. Yeah. So my, my co-host on our podcast, the math is figureoutable podcast, Kim um, talks about, we have kind of a, a 
Venn diagram thing that says that which we know is kind of the biggest, largest uh, oval is more than that which we can say. And what we can say is kind of inside that oval. And then there's a smaller one in there that's that which we can represent. So, yeah. <clears throat> so like we, we can, we, we have stuff going on in our heads and it's, it's hard to talk about it. We can say, we can talk about less than, than everything that's in our heads and we can represent even less than that. But it also, then my insight came when I, as she would talk about that, that I was like, but that's actually how we can solidify learning. And I think it follows what you just said. We give students something that they gain insight in, and that's in that no area. And so they're gaining insight in their brain. And then as we pull out language, we help them clarify through language and discussing it, that which they say, that actually helps clarify what was happening in their brain. And then we're like, ooh, as you say that, I think the first job of a teacher then is to say, ooh, as you're talking about those relationships, it could look like this. And I can model those relationships. So I'm drawing an open number line in, in the air. I could be using an area model or a ratio table. But as a student is saying, well, so for example, when my kid said five times 23, well, do you know 10 times 23? I could have said, well, let's see, do I know? Like a 10 by 23, that rectangle, what would that look like? And then when he says, well, five is half of 10. So if you know the area of the 10 by 23 is 230, can you think about half that area? Well, that's like almost like a proof without words where we could just like look at that first rectangle. But as we talk about it, and then I, I, that, I think this is where the teacher expertise comes in is that students are talking about that insight they're having and the teacher can make it visible. Then students can sharpen that insight, deepen that, like clarify it. Then we ask students now, can you represent your thinking? So I think it's there's a, a very nice analog of the process of helping kids really clarify really and, and actually learn. Like that, that's the yeah. So I, I think we're very aligned on that. Yeah. <laughs> so um before the podcast, we were talking about uh an organization mm-hmm. that seems to be getting a little tr- an organization, an idea, let's say an idea. Um the science of math. Mm-hmm. And um, the so I'll let, let's just science of math, Pam. So with all due respect, I think um, it is um, a few people who are trying to ride the coattails of the science of reading. And um, I think it's ironic that they are because they're actually a, kind of diametrically opposed to much of what the science of reading would say. But they're trying to, if I understand both both sort of of them correctly, I think they're trying to use some of the same tactics that science of reading used and po- political um, and, tactics, uh, political and sort of argumentative taxes ta- yeah. uh, tactics um, to 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 make a point. I would suggest that they're, uh, and, and I'd be happy to talk to them if I'm wrong on this, but it it appears to me that their underlying premise is that math is fake math, what I call fake math, that it is a disconnected set of facts to memorize, rules and procedures to mimic. And we must help kids mimic and memorize those things in order for them someday to be able to do real math. Um, and and I, 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 I disagree with that premise. I disagree that that is the definition of getting kids to hire math. I think we can do the work of mathing with young math, with, with, um, that it's not about rote memorizing a bunch of stuff so that then you can start to do math. We can actually math with kids as they are learning to count, as they are learning to add, subtract, and do other uh, spatial kinds of things with 
with math. So uh, do you agree with that, that that's kind of the underpinning of the of their argument? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, my take, first of all, the whole notion that they have this extensive research base um, that supports their technique. I mean, you know, you and I talked about research before, and I've done some research in my career uh, in a number of contexts. And so I think there's always a caution label that should go with research in social science. Mm. These are not proofs. When people say the research shows that, I always want to say, no, no, it doesn't. People actually, when I was in my doc program, one of my professors called me out on that because I was a district administrator and I gave him the same thing. You know, there's two studies that say, so that shows even really important researchers will say, mm, research, especially in the social sciences, suggests, argues for, points to, but it doesn't prove anything. And I would say in all of ed research, um, there's really only two things that have enough of a research base to say that um, the confounding variables have been accounted for, right? So tracking is not a positive thing for most students. That's a pretty robust finding. And it's probably not a good idea to retain a kid in elementary school. Aside from those two things, I would say everything is up for grabs. So the move that, you know, those other us, they don't know what they're talking about in terms of research, but we're going to tell you the real research. That's a straw man and, and it's false. And a couple of months ago, I was on their website and they had this, they had this thing, math uh, misconceptions or myths. Mm -hmm. That was it, myths. Mm -hmm. And and they and someone who remained nameless was in Vermont expounding these things. And one of them was there's no empirical relationship between time tests and math anxiety. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and it was on their site, right? So I go yeah. to Google Scholar and I do the simplest possible search, time test. Math anxiety. There's 10 empirical studies that say, oh, yeah, there's an absolutely a positive result. As if it's not obvious that you're, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, yeah, oh, I'm anxious about what I'm doing in math. I'm not a good math student. So, okay, here's the stopwatch. Oh, that's not going to make me angry. In fact, I think science of math actually says that timed tests are an important element in math instruction. And yet, you know, Joe Bowler and a whole bunch of other people have written extensively about this, that doing it quickly doesn't have any connection to the fact that you have deeper understanding. In fact, maybe you memorized it better. Yeah, I'd have it super. I mean, I was, to be clear, I was really quick. So my, I had, I won round the world in third grade. Arlene Wheeler, are you <laughs> out there? The world. Arlene Wheeler and I were, yeah, we were always the last two. And, and we would look around to see what point I was going to meet Arlene Wheeler, because I knew that it was going to be between the two of us. And, and, and what it meant is the two of us who owned, owned, who had wrote, memorized the facts, the fastest got the most practice. That's a terrible, it's a terrible, terrible, right? right. Yeah, never yeah, do, yeah. never do around the world. Um, To give the devil his due. I, I think, I think I'd like to dive in a little bit to this idea of time tests, because I, I wonder if we could have listeners that go, but Pam, don't we, or Pam and John, don't we want students to not get bogged down in these simple facts when we know they need them for higher math? To which I would say, yes, but time test is not the way to do it. 
So in other words, yeah. there's an intuition that says, I've gotten bogged down when uh, pick pick a random person who's who's gone through math and they they know they're doing this higher problem this this more uh, advanced problem and in the midst of it they feel themselves not knowing the parts of it well enough to like they, they it's bogging them down or maybe even more so take a math teacher who recognizes students who are supposed to be doing say a, a multiplication problem and the kids counting by ones or they're supposed to be doing uh, factoring quadratics and the kids counting to 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 figure out the multiples of the of the of the, yeah. of the that C term, um, and they they recognize in that these kids are bogged down in less sophisticated thinking. They I sure wish they had those facts at their fingertips that could or whatever it is that could then not bog them down. So I want to pay onus to to that notion. Absolutely, we would like to get yeah. kids to have certain things at their fingertips in a way that it doesn't bog them down for then the next level of math they're going to do. Yep. What we're arguing, so we're, we're, we're going to agree with them on that point. We absolutely don't want kids doing unsophisticated things that bog them down. What I'm going to suggest, I won't put words in your mouth, is that we have to get kids grow their brains in sophistication so that stuff doesn't bog them down. It's not about rote memorizing the stuff. If you wrote memorize this stuff, that's all kids have. If we grow their brains in sophistication, we have the facts and so much more. And thinkers that can now survive in a world with AI and yeah, it's also it points to a it's kind of a flaw in the reasoning about memorization because of the way information is connected in memory. You know, this there's the same amount of information in two times two as there is in seven times eight. They're both single digit multiplication problems. So it should be just as easy from a information uh, processing perspective to memorize two times two as seven times eight. Should it, It's the same amount of data. And yet we all know that six times seven, seven times eight, nine times. Like, those are all the ones that kids have difficulty with. Uh, there's some teachers in Maine that we worked with a few years ago who were addressing the habitual problem. You work with a lot of ninth graders, right? And yeah. a lot of the special educators who are working with ninth graders, they're still drilling them on the multiplication facts out of a belief that they can't do any other math if they don't have their times tables. But you know, you want to say, these kids have been getting this since fourth grade, right? Yeah. If it hasn't worked yet, what are you doing magically that's going to like turn that on a dime? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So their poor kids are still getting it. So they said, you know, what? we're going to we're going to shift this conversation. And all facts uh, are some combination of five twos and ones. And so everything gets decomposed into fives, twos and ones. And, you know, I don't, I have not looked at this empirically. I haven't looked at it systemically. Anecdotally, though, they say this has made a huge difference for these kids, both in terms of being able to get at things like seven times eight, but also, excuse me, in terms of the idea of numbers within numbers and that flexible number thinking that we're talking about. I mean, a lot of times when people are unhappy about this kind of math that we're teaching that is open to everyone that 
provides greater success for students. Um, they forget the fact that a lot of what we do is mental math. You know, number talks are an important part of this and students' ability to reason mentally and flexibly with these numbers is a really important part of what we're doing. And the route to that flexibility and competence generally does not lie through memorization alone. Yeah, or, or mostly for sure. And I would add into that, um, that I think number talks are fine and I think they have a place, but I prefer problem strings, which means a series or string oh, of problems. Two. I think yep. a problem in its, uh, in isolation is fine and it has a place, but, um, I, I, I worry, I, I'm a little concerned that we've given, um, number talks kind of a, uh, a panacea, like if I throw a problem out, and even if it's a really good problem on the edge of their zone of proximal development, and I get students, let's say I have student A that's doing it this way, and student C doing it this way, and student E doing it this way. Yay, look how flexible we are. When in reality, student A didn't learn student C's way, and student C didn't learn student A's way or E's way. Um, my point is <clears throat> that I think we have to be a little bit more systematic about what the major relationships are, similar to your uh, two twos and five what, ones twos and fives is that what it was fives twos and ones five okay. twos and ones I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to think about that a little bit more um I think there might be some other relationships that I might also um put in there um I think we have to know what the major relationships are and then we have to be fairly intentional about developing those relationships not telling kids those relationships you can't tell a relationship sure. like think about relationship in the terms of interpersonal relationships I can't say you two are now friends be friends. Like you can't, you can't do that. That that has to organically happen. It's kind of that insight you were talking about before. There has to be experience between two people to build a relationship. Students similarly have to have experiences decomposing numbers in certain ways, in those major relationship kind of ways. So I really like problem strings, strings or series of problems, because uh, those are the way that I look at Hey, if this is a major relationship, five is half of 10. Uh, and I just keep using that one. There are others, but um, I'll use that one because we've already talked about it a little bit where I'll give students problems in a certain order to get students to uh, hopefully on that edge. So where they're gaining insight, but it's towards a particular relationship. It, uh, I think this is, again, to, to sort of give other folks their due. If they think that when I say inquiry learning, I mean, Hey, whatever you want to study today is fine. So whatever, good. What, so yeah, whatever, good. you know, just dive in and think about whatever you want to think about. Then I'm going to say, well, then that's not what I do. What I do is I know the landscape. I'm I'm very aware of the major things that I want kids to own, not memorize, but own. And so I'm going to put very specific experiences in front of students that have the highest potential to have kids have that insight that you were talking about earlier. And one of those um, ways to do that is through problem strings. Right. And there has to be there have to be clear goals, which is why we're so invested in the high leverage concepts, because we're trying to get people to say these are the really it's not the top of the bar. It's not everything we want kids to know. But if if we're looking at what kids what kids need to be successful in the next year, this is the minimum understanding that they need. And so all of the work is always pointed in that direction. I like to say it's it's directional. It, it has directionality to it. We're moving toward understanding this particular concept. We here at uh, Allen, we have a class going on today about specialized math instruction. 
and we were talking to the teachers about, or we were discussing with them, the, the experience of working with a student that's having difficulty with math. And we realized at a certain point that it's a lot like therapy in certain ways, right? A therapist doesn't say to you, yeah, stop doing that. <laughs> Do this instead, right? They try to ask you questions to get you to understand your thinking and maybe make different choices. And I think there's a lot of that that happens in good math instruction. You know, my book's called Solving for Why. Such a clever title. Very clever. clever title. Nicely yeah. done. Nicely yeah. done. But that's the whole idea, right? Why we have to understand a student's thinking if we're actually going to help them make the next conceptual leap. So we're, we're, we're getting toward our deadline here, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about what's coming up for Pam Harris, like what's on the horizon for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, so many people are talking about, um, I, I think, uh, let's build conceptual understanding in students so that then they can do the algorithms better, so they can mimic these steps better if they have some understanding behind it then they'll do these things better. Everyone is, is saying that, and I'm saying it's not about those steps. But if it's not, what is it? So I've created um, what I think are some super experiences for teachers to really delve into, building addition for young learners, building powerful multiplication, building powerful division, building powerful subtraction, building powerful proportional reasoning, and building powerful linear functions are online workshops that I have. So if teachers are interested to grow in those areas, um, those are some ways that uh, any any listeners can sort of check out how they could grow their content. We talked earlier about the the what and the how. They can grow both of those. Um, so you could check out mathisfigureoutable.com is uh, the website. Um, what we we just launched building powerful subtraction. That's our sixth um, online workshop, and we're about to film. Golly, when we're taping this in in a week and a half, um, I'm not nervous. Um, so when we create these workshops, we film a two day live workshop with teachers so that, that we, it, it's, it's almost like you're there. You're just not the teacher who got called on in that moment. We cut it all up. We make these online workshops. We're about to film for building powerful fractions. And I'm oh, nice. super excited about that. I think we have a lot to offer, uh, the world for that. Um, we're also writing, uh, at the moment, grade level problem string books for kindergarten through fifth grade. Um, those will be out, um, in early 2024. Uh, that's um, causing a lot of my brain power to go that direction, but uh, lots of fun thinking about, you know, what are ways to help students really learn these big, uh, big things in those grade levels, uh, the, the important things, what, what are ways we could create series of problems uh, that both teachers and students uh, can, can experience all that. So those are some things that are on my horizon um, that, that we're working, working hard on, doing a lot of good work, working with a lot of international schools, um, around the world. And that's been, that's been super fun, actually. Some, some really early and late night sessions that I'm doing to hit time zones when it makes sense yeah, for other people. Yeah. yeah. Really fun. Well, thank you so much, Pam, for joining us today. I, I'm sure we're going to have many more conversations in the future and hopefully we'll record them so other people can listen to them too. Hey, can I finish the story about my kid that I started earlier? <clears throat> of course. So, so that kid that said, mom, mom, five is half of 10. Um, a couple of years later, when I was just about ready to say, we don't need algorithms. So all the research I was doing, all the experimenting, I was just about ready to go. I'm pretty sure we don't need algorithms. Came home. He was in seventh grade. I'll never forget. And he said, mom, it's taking me too long 
to do long division with decimals. That's what had changed is he was now in a class. It was long division of decimals. And he goes, I can still reason through all of them, but it's taking me longer than everyone else. And I'm kind of tired of being the last one done. Like, do you mind? Like, will you teach me? I, I, he had up to that point, just ignored all the algorithms and he had. And they couldn't just use a calculator. No, no. So at that point I said, you know, okay, first of all, it was a little crisis for me. Do we need algorithms? Don't we, you know, there's a little bit of that question. But I thought to myself, it's my kid, you know, my mom's heart. Yes, yes. But I was going to teach him long division with with reasoning, with understanding, right? So in that in that off the cuff moment, the only kind of long division of decimal problem that I kind of knew the answer to that I could kind of work on, I knew that the answer um, or the the number uh, needed to be smaller than the other number. And so, like I said to myself, if I eight into six, like if I thought like six divided by eight, I could. I can help him with that. And I'm really thinking about long division. So I've got the eight in the housetop and the six, no, the eight outside the housetop and the six inside, you know, and I'm like, okay, with reasoning, honey, with reasoning, what times eight is six? And as I pause, I know right now I'm going to have to like sort of nudge him to do the decimal point and the zero and all the things, right? And my kid looks at me and he goes, um, two thirds, no, three fourths. (laughs) And I, and I said, no, no, I will not teach you the long division algorithm. No, because you have been reasoning, because you have been diving in and creating these relationships, you can now think about six divided by eight as six eighths. And, and six eighths is three fourths. And, and that like he had this sense of fraction multiplication and the connection to decimals and all the things his strategy out of the box, a little different. Sometimes y'all, I've just encourage you. We all have to think a little out of the box. So if you're listening today and you're wondering like, do I, should I y'all try something different? Take a risk that pays off that risk. That kid went on to get a degree in English and computer science. You'll someday read his, his fantasy novel because he's an amazing writer, but he made it through the math to get a computer science degree with no algorithms, no mimicking, because math actually is figure outable and we can all do it. <laughs> nice. That was nice. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Pam. Thanks, John. It was great. Remember, you can find a recording of our podcast at alllearnersnetwork.com and on Spotify or Anchor, search ALN Math Talk, along with free resources like our high leverage concepts, high leverage assessments, high leverage progressions high leverage t-shirts, belt buckles, and coffee mugs. We're going to have to send you a coffee mug. ALN Math Talk is produced by the All Learners Network, All Rights Reserved. Executive producer, John, I was just thinking Tapper. Spiritual and mathematical guidance has been provided by Robert Fly in the Water, Mike Brew, stats-loving Laird, who reminds us that we'd probably be more successful if we just drew a freaking picture. Our theme music was written and performed by Sarah Blair. Join us next time for more engaging discussions about interesting math topics and fascinating education folks.